You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie, and today we're going to be answering some questions. So I've gotten a lot of questions from a lot of different people, and I want to say thank you to everyone who sent in questions. And today, really, all I'm going to do is answer some questions. So it's not an episode on any particular topic. It's just a few people who have asked some questions, and I'm just going to take a few minutes to answer those questions. I wish that I had the... um, the handles for the people who sent out in social, uh, and I apologize, and the names for the people who ask. I'll try to do that going forward, but I've got some questions that are, are have been put out, and I'm going to start answering. So here's, here's the first one. Quick question, which is probably where I came up with the idea of kind of answering quick questions, but here we go. Rick, uh, I started my NASM studies about two months ago, and I'm wondering if uh, you can do a, a podcast on planes of motion like frontal, sagittal, transverse, along with maybe muscle flexion like dorsiflexion, plantar flexion, etc. I keep getting mixed information, mostly on planes of motion. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to do the planes of motion and just review the planes of motion. Now, I think that knowing wh- wh- what the names of them are, it's pretty simple, right? So you just memorize them. It's sagittal, frontal, and transverse. Knowing what they are and and how to identify them, I think really there's one confusing one, and that's frontal plane. So we'll talk about the frontal plane and try to how to keep that from being so confusing. The first one and primary one is going to be the sagittal plane, and that's really how our body works primarily is in the sagittal plane. Because the sagittal plane, if you you take sagittal plane and it's basically moving forward and backwards, up and down. And if you look at our body, like you take the skin off and you look at the, that, the muscle diagrams, all the muscles primarily, if you look at them from the front, run up and down on the front or the back of the body. Now, yes, there are some oblique angles, and of course, there are some muscles lateral and there are some muscle medial. But if you look at from the front and the back, they mostly move or they run up and down, which means they will move you forward and backwards up and down. Those are the sagittal plane. Think about... Sagittarius. Sagittarius. If you are Sagittarius, you'd think of the uh, the centaur, so the 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 horse body. A horse moves primarily forward and backwards, uh, and the legs move up and down, forward and backwards. They're not the most agile in the frontal plane or moving side to side. They're not the most agile transverse, but they are super good at forward and backwards. Um, so sagittal plane, up and down, forward and backwards. Transverse plane. So we'll go with the other one that's uh, relatively more simple. So transverse plane is going to include rotational movements or any horizontal movement, sometimes called the horizontal plane. And it's when a joint pivots on a vertical axis. So if you have a vertical axis, I'm going to show you here, I've got a, a pin that is straight up and down, and then anything that spins along that axis will be in the transverse plane. So that's a vertical axis going to move in the transverse plane, kind of like your shoulders when you're doing a chest fly, right? So your arms are out to the side, you bring your arms closer together, that is horizontal adduction in the horizontal or the transverse plane. All right, well, that makes sense. But then we get to the confusing one. 
we get to the frontal plane. And the frontal plane, for a lot of us, it just doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. The reason why it doesn't make any sense is because frontal plane was not initially, planes of motion weren't for when people were doing movement, they were when people were doing dissection. So if you wanted to see the front of somebody's brain, then you would have to cut side to side, you would pull it off, and you would say, that's what the front of the brain looks like. So you would do a frontal plane cut so you could see what it looks like from the front. So when you do a frontal plane exercise, you can see what the exercise looks like from the front. So the movements are all side to side because if I put my hand in front of me like a bicep curl, I've now blocked my arm with my forearm. So you can't see it. But if I put my arms out to the side like a jumping jack and I do movements or I do side shuffles, you can see my entire body from the front. It is a frontal plane movement. So I, I hope that that helps a little bit in understanding the frontal, sagittal, and transverse planes. All right, cool. Let's move on to the next question. And it is awesome podcast. Been wondering about this ever since I got certified. I have a quick question about the overhead squat assessment. So let's say a client shows knee valgus during the very first session. And I want to have them uh, would I have them SMR the overactive muscles before moving into the workout? And should I do the same thing, SMR overactive muscles from the initial assessment, before beginning? of each workout as well. And the answer is going to be, yeah, if you are going to have somebody move, we want to try to optimize that movement as much as possible. So if, if they're doing a squat and they have knee valgus, then it is incumbent upon us to minimize knee valgus before we go into a, the, the exercising of maybe doing squats, right? Because I don't want them to exercise valgus when they're when they're working out because they'll get better at valgus. So we want to try to get them out of that. So we can do foam rolling and stretching, these overactive muscles that are potentially pulling them into a valgus. But then don't stop there. Don't just think foam rolling. Don't just think stretching. But let's think activation as well. So what are going to be some of the muscles that we might foam roll? Well, that would be something like the TFL. It would be the adductors, obviously, if we're valgus, which is when the knees cave in towards each other. And then you want to strengthen the abductors. And the abductors during a squat would be your hip abductors that would realign your knees back into a neutral position. And there's going to be things like the glute medius, the glute maximus. I would add in some core support to try to maintain good core activation. And we've got research, and we talked about in a previous episode, how doing the core activation exercises can actually benefit you when you do um, uh, stabilization for the hip. So it can be very indicated and highly indicated. So I think that it is a good idea to do all of those things, not just one of them. All right, cool. So here's the next question. The next one says, uh, "This is my man or lady, showing off a little bit here. I'm an NASM CPT. With a P-E-S-C-E-S and Y-E-S. Y-E-S is uh, youth. And now they're working on the CNC, so the Certified Nutrition Coach. And uh, that'll be my next endeavor for my personal betterment as well, for my lifelong learning. The question is, do you think it's okay to have more than one niche? 
Well, I, I'm going to say yeah. And here, here's why. There are a lot of people who are going to disagree with me, and, and that's okay. But let's say, for instance, you want to do um, corrective exercise. And I would really say that that is my niche. That's more what I focus on. But I do a lot of corrective exercise that focuses on uh, optimizing performance. But if you want to have a niche, then you better have a market for it. And if you are a fitness professional, then it's really hard to build a business around one thing. And I've had this conversation with a friend of mine. He's a business partner, and he's been a manager for a long time uh, in the fitness industry and a trainer for a long time. His name is Chad Rayner. He's at Technical Fitness on Instagram. You should follow him because he's pretty crazy what that guy can do with his body. And what he says, and we've had this conversation, you kind of have to have the, you got to be a jack of all trades. If you want to train more people, you have to provide more offerings. And yeah, can you be the corrective exercise guy? Or can you be the kettlebell guy? Or can you be the Olympic lifting guy? Yeah. But you better have the market to, to accept that, right? And if the market is not present, then you can be the kettlebell guy and have two clients. So you better also be a nutrition guy and maybe grab some more clients. And if you think nutrition isn't good for your kettlebell guys, then you are also sorely mistaken. So you've got to start incorporating other things into your programming and help your clients to optimize what their outcomes are. So I love the question. I love the question. But you're going to have a lot of people say, look, are you going to be performance and you're going to focus on strength and conditioning? Just do strength and conditioning. And I get it. I get where you're coming from. Like master your craft and your focus. But for people who are doing that, they're strength and conditioning coaches, and that's their job. They have that job. So the market exists for them. But if you don't have that job, you're a personal trainer, not a strength and conditioning coach, and you're not working for a team, then you got to be able to provide service to, um, to Mrs. Rosini, who's 62 years old, working at the bank, wants to be able to play with her kids, and I know that you want to be a strength and conditioning coach. I know it. But you also want to be a personal trainer that makes money. You may have to accept the Mrs. Rosinis of the world from time to time. And that's going to happen. Can you assist somebody who wants to increase flexibility or wants to lose weight or wants to because that's who our clients are? Those are who our clients are. And when you get the opportunity to train them, it's very, very inconsiderate in some ways and inappropriate in others when you say, I'm a strength and conditioning guy, so I'm going to train you like a strength and conditioning client because that is who I am and that's what I do. It doesn't mean you can't train them that way, but if you're not optimizing their outcomes, you are just optimizing like you're just doing what you like to do. Same thing for people who are Pilates trainers. And I've got somebody that wants to get bigger, faster, stronger. And they say, well, I'm a Pilates trainer and everybody needs Pilates. So that's how I'm going to train you. No, you train that person for bigger, faster, stronger and incorporate Pilates because it is a value to them, but it is not the primary means of outcome that's going to get them there. So... Do I think that you should pick one thing? If you are a strength and conditioning coach, then 
you should probably focus on strength and conditioning. If you're a personal trainer, you should have a primary niche, and everybody's going to find it over the course of the years, like, what's your thing? But, honestly, take a stab at a lot of different things. Study a lot of different things. You know, get a specialization in multiple different things and figure out how that applies to you and your clients and your programming. And then over the course of time, you're going to figure out your thing as a trainer. And it might include a little bit of all of these things or it might start to narrow down into your own personal niche. And that's on you. So do I think that's good? Yeah, I think it's great. I think it's a lot of really cool opportunities, but you got to play at a lot of things before you can figure out who you are. So keep doing what you're doing, man. Keep getting those um, those specializations and the additional focuses, foci, foci. Keep working. Figure out where it is you want to go. Figure out who you can take with you and what clients you can pick up along the way. All right, cool. Um, do you guys have, oh, next question. Do you guys have a podcast pertaining to your other certifications yet? Like nutrition possibly? No, we don't. We don't. But what I'll probably do because let's go back to the previous question about the niche. That is not my core competency. So what we may do is have one of my peers at NASM, perhaps somebody like Mike Fantagrassi, who is uh, really dialed into not just nutrition, but the nutrition coaching, nutrition product, and the service that NASM provides with nutrition. So we might have him take the mic that day and do a certification or do a, um, a podcast episode specifically about this. Now, as a researcher, can I go and find content? For sure. But I'd much rather bring in one of my peers who already is, you know, has a lot of those answers in his back pocket and he can provide those to you, and he can provide those to you well. So I think that we will have some episodes. It just probably won't be me doing it. It might be like an interview style, so I might intro him and have him on the podcast and see if we can provide some information around nutrition. If y'all think that's cool, you want to shout out like that, let me know if if that's something you want, and I'll put that one together. All right, next question. Um, Binge listening to the pod tonight. And it's great. Holla. Going forward, can we get some episodes on breathing? Um, I don't know if we're going to have an episode on it, but here's what I say. Do it. I think you should. I have a feeling you wanted more of an answer than that. Um, here are a few things to think about. There, There's... Um, there's a lot of things about breathing that are indicated, and I'm not talking about like, oh, how do you breathe when you run, or how do you breathe when you exercise, but there's something about breathing and the inhalation and the exhalation and the isolation and the valsalva, which is the, the closing of the sphincter muscles so that nothing escapes and that you create this massive intra-abdominal pressure. All of this stuff has to do with breathing or not breathing and how that can maximize your lifts or your outcomes or your safety when you're doing it. So think about this when it comes to breathing. There's an exercise out there called the Lewitt, and I covered this in the core exercise uh, podcast where we talked about or abdominal bracing versus abdominal hollowing. We talked about the Lewitt exercise, and the Lewitt exercise is just... Um, simplistically speaking, full exhalation. 
So, and that's as, as simple as I'm going to put it because there are some other protocols that are used by Dr. Carol Lewitt when he was doing this research. And he was a peer of Yonda, who is one of the, you know, the, the old school previous researchers where we pull a lot of content from. Yonda was a real visionary and trailblazer in the world of physical therapy and uh, what later turned into uh, what we do as personal trainers when it comes to assessments. So uh, Dr. Carol Lewitt was a peer of Yonda's and a neuroscientist, and he wanted to identify how we could activate and strengthen the core. And one of the things he would do, which we call the Lewitt exercise, is basically lying on your back with your legs up and going into a full exhalation. Um, Dr. Stu McGill and a, a group of researchers did a study on it and found out that the extreme exhalation, so taking that deep breath in and then kind of pursing your lips like you're blowing through a straw, like a very, very tiny hole, and exhaling through that as hard as you can. So you're basically breathing out against resistance until there's no more breath left in the lungs. And you will feel all of these muscles in your core start to activate. It gets really tight in there. There are a lot of muscles that help support exhalation. And so when you do this exhalation, what they found is that it was uh, it elicited far more activation in the core muscles than what they expected, and certainly more than what was found during the drawing-in maneuver, abdominal hollowing, and what was found during abdominal bracing. So it's pretty significant, the outcomes that were found there. And I think that it has a carryover, not necessarily through full exhalation, but the carryover might make sense. So when people are doing the concentric phase of a lift where you're overcoming the force of gravity or you're overcoming the force of resistance concentrically, the muscle is shortening, you're doing, quote, the lift, that maybe you exhale during the lift. And by doing the exhalation while you're doing your concentric component of the muscle action spectrum, while you're lifting, it can potentially increase your muscle activation in your core. So you increase stabilization during the, quote, most difficult component of the exercise, which is the lift. Most difficult, uh, meaning like as far as effort is concerned. Um, the eccentric component tends to be a bit more challenging, not on voluntary muscles, but on the muscle fiber in themselves. Uh, and that's where the damage tends to take place and soreness takes place primarily through that eccentric component. But it's easier to lower things down than it is to lift them up. It's easier to do something eccentrically than it is concentrically. So you would breathe out during the concentric component and then potentially breathing in during the eccentric component as you lift. Now, the... The stabilization through something like the Valsalva maneuver where people will start to do a lift and they'll, <sighs> and they hold their breath, right? There's value to that too, but you have to be careful with that because um, if you've ever watched those horrible videos on YouTube of people passing out with heavy weights on them, uh, there's a lot of things going on. There's this systemic um, blood pressure increase that's taking place because you're doing both Valsalva and you're doing a max effort lift. And when those things happen, the lights can potentially turn out. And when the lights turn out, you've got weight on you. Then that's what we may refer to as a not so good 
So you got to be careful with the Valsalva. We usually try to coach people out of Valsalva, but there are times and there are lifts where that is incredibly and highly indicated, but it's usually from athletes who have weightlifting as a sport and they've been trained in and how to Valsalva in order to maximize their core stabilization while they're producing max efforts and max lifts while still focus on when are they supposed to breathe so they don't pass out while doing these lifts. So anyway, there's a series of a few questions that were asked, and I love that these questions were asked, and we put together some smaller bite-sized questions so we don't have an episode necessarily on a topic, but we can cover several topics in a single episode. So if you have additional topics that you would like for me, even just as a quick question or entire episode, um, let me know. Hit me up on Instagram, at dr.rickrichie, and that's R-I-C-H-E-Y, or you can hit me up at email, rick.richie, R-I-C-H-E-Y, at N-A-S-M dot org, or you can go to the, the podcast website, reach out to this, and even on the podcast website, you can leave a voicemail, which somebody did. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, anyway, thank you so much for listening. This is the NASM CPT Podcast. As a thank you for listening to the NASM CPT podcast, I've got a special offer for you. 20% off of any NASM order. You can use that 20% to get certified as a personal trainer through our CPT program, the standard for the fitness industry, or expand your career with one of our specializations, including our latest one, NASM Nutrition Certification, which gives you the skills to be a certified nutrition coach. Get 20% off your order by calling 800-460-6276 or visiting nasm.org and using the code PODCAST20. That's 800-460-6276, and the discount code is PODCAST20. Start changing even more lives today.